I love you, but I don't really like you. Which uh, maybe, maybe you've heard someone say something like that before. Maybe you've said it yourself before. I know that many of us maybe have family or even friends or church family or co-workers that we would all like to say that we love them even if we don't particularly always like them. You know, and, and I think there's some truth to that. I, I do think you can love someone without liking them, but I'm also kind of suspicious of it because most of the time when I hear people say, you know, I love them, but I don't like them, it usually calls to my mind that they probably don't actually love that person very much either. And uh, I, I do think there is a good distinction there, though, at times. You know, even sometimes I'll tell my wife, instead of just saying, I love you, I'll actually say, I like you. Because I think it's sometimes important to mention both. It's not just that I love her, that we've been married, but it's that I actually like her, like spending time with her, and like her as a person. This morning, I want to talk about love, but maybe a little bit differently uh, than we have before. As some of you may know, even though in the bulletin there's multiple little points there in the sermon, I, I tend to like to preach one main idea when I preach. I think every passage probably has at least one main idea you can get at. And this morning, it, even though it's not there in the bulletin, I guess the main idea that I want you to take away is pray for love. Pray for true love. Not movie true love, but true, genuine, real love. Christian love. And so this morning, as we look to this passage, we see first that in Paul's prayer to the Philippians, this is him ending the opening section of the letter, he prays for them, and his prayer is for love. And it specifically starts with more love. He prays that they would have more love. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. You know, he doesn't pray for them to start loving. And he doesn't pray that they'll, they'll get love. He assumes that they already have love. But he wants and he prays for there to be more. That it would be abundant. That it would be abounding. That it would be overflowing. And likewise, we may already have love, but we can always use more. And to quote the, the band Boston, which I don't want to make a habit of doing, uh, love really is more than a feeling. It's not just a strong desire or a strong like or a strong lust for something. Love proves itself through action. And perhaps one of the most famous passages of Scripture to do with love is 1 Corinthians 13. And if you've been in church very long, you've probably heard preachers preach on that passage, and they'll probably tell you it's really not about love generically. They'll say, you know, everyone reads it at their weddings, but it's really not about a marriage kind of love. It's about a church kind of love, which I knew that, and when I got married, I still had it read at my wedding because you can't beat 1 Corinthians 13. So I just want to read it to set our minds on this idea of love that Paul would have for the Christian church. 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I ha if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am 
nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. In Paul's uh, time and today, all three of these, faith, hope, and love, are important. And you'll see, if you look through Paul's letter, he talks about those three together quite often. And he says that in his time, and this is still true today, that those three remain, they abide, they continue, but only love will remain forever. This is part of the reason he says love is the greatest. It is the only one that will continue when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns... Hope will become reality. Faith will become sight. But love will still be love. And this isn't crazy either because love not only will continue where the others will end, but it also pre-exists all of them and all things. Because before God created, even before creation began to exist, God existed. He is the creator of all things And he himself was not created. He's the uncreated creator. And when he existed, even before creation, he existed in love. 1 John 4.16 teaches us that God is love. And, And we know that God exists in a loving relationship. God is triune. God, Father, God the Son, And God the Holy Spirit. And we learn from Scripture that the Father loves the Son. We learn from the Scripture, really, that all three of the persons, we get the idea that they all love one another. Someone even say that out of this love came the overflow of love that led to God creating. I don't know if that's right, but it at least hits at the right idea that God exists in a perfectly loving relationship and love pre-exists all things because God himself is love. It's not very often that scripture will say God is anything. It's not very often that it'll give a noun or an adjective that it specifically says God is this. But here in scripture we get clearly God is love. Love is essential to knowing who God is. Christian churches don't just sing songs about love and read scripture about love and talk about love out their ears because it's fun and because it makes them happy. 
Christians talk about love so much because our scripture talks about love so much, and our scripture is the word of God. God himself, it teaches us, is love. If we cannot love, then we really have nothing else, as Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is essential to following Christ and to worshiping the true God. So what does love look like? What does God's love look like? Perhaps uh, the passage that gets us really clearly at what the love of God looks like may be John 3.16, which I know you've heard to death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. God's love looks like loving the enemy. Scripture teaches us, but, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were disobedient against God, while we rebelled against God, Christ died for us. God's love is shown in how he, how he loves us even in our state of sin. God's love is shown for us because it's sacrificial. God has to come. God the Son has to come to the earth and, and take on human flesh and die a sinner's death which he did not deserve. He had to undergo all of that. Why? Because God loves us. God's love is not self-serving, it's other-serving. And it's good, it's good to want more love. Because if God is love, more love equals more God. So when we pray for more love, we're praying for a good thing. It is always good to have more love. Don't let anyone tell you any differently. However, the love we have to have has to be wiser love. We see in verses 9 and 10 that Paul prays for their love to abound more and more. But then he says this, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. With, all, with knowledge and all discernment. discernment. But our, see, our love cannot be hasty and irrational. It cannot be purely emotional. Our love has to connect not just what's in our heart, but what's in our head. We have to have love that is wise. If we are going to be people who truly love and love well, we have to be people who love wisely, love in a way that discerns, in a way that shows wisdom. We need wisdom to pursue love well. Really, if you think about it, wisdom is the ability to, to not just know things, but to discern in different situations what is good and what is evil. And we see that the, the search for wisdom begins very early in Scripture. In, in Genesis, the first humans, Adam and Eve, they were tempted to take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, God had placed them in a garden, and in that garden he gave them access to the tree of life. But they also had access to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but God said not to eat the fruit of that tree, because if they did, they would surely die. And they didn't trust God. They didn't obey God's word. Instead, they disobeyed God, which is sin, and they took the fruit and they ate of it. See, because they wanted to take 
from God the ability to say what was good and what was evil. And we all do that in our lives. We want to decide, we want to be able to evaluate from our own standpoint, our own perspective, what is right and what is wrong, instead of trusting what God says is right or wrong. And so from the very beginning, we have wanted to take for ourselves the ability to call some things right and some things wrong, some things good and some things evil. And wisdom, though, wisdom is that ability to not only know, but also be able to discern between good and evil. Although Adam and Eve tried to take it for themselves, God actually isn't stingy with wisdom. He actually gives it very freely. As, as James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. See, we cannot take wisdom for ourselves, but we can pray to God, the giver of all good things, to give us wisdom. We oftentimes want to be wise on our own, to say that our experiences have driven us to be wise, that we don't need help from God. But in all humility, if we are going to have true, biblical, Christian, godly, discerning wisdom, we have to pray and ask God which puts us in a, in a state of utter need from God. And it's not just that. It's not just wisdom we have to ask God for. We have to ask God for the kind of love that is wise. Because we need to be able to approve what is excellent. See, if we go with the culture's idea of love, just the strong feeling or desire or lust, these, these, these gushy feelings and butterflies in the stomach then we can be led to all sorts of situations where in the name of love, we actually deny the things of God and end up denying what is truly love. And I know you can't avoid it, that we hear in our culture things like love is love. And that sounds good, that sounds pithy, but sometimes even statements like that, even, even the idea and the concept of love can be used in very, very unloving ways allowing people to live in sin, allowing people to embrace sin, allowing people to carry on in sin, all in the name of love. All in the name, sometimes even in some Christian churches and denominations, it's not just in the name of love, but it is in the name of God. That we declare that some ways of loving are right, even though the scripture declares them as wrong. So we have to be able to have not just abundant love, but we have to have a wiser love. A love that is able to know and to discern the truth and call what is good, good, and what is evil, evil. And we also need to pray for better love. In verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul's goal here for the Philippians is that more love and wiser love might lead to better love. And what I mean by better love is really this, love that makes us more like Jesus. Holier love, sanctifying love, love that that helps us to follow the word of God. So that we don't just know it and we can't just and we don't just discern it, but we also obey it. 
As Harold prayed for us this morning, that we would not just hear the word, but be doers of it. We pray for a better love. And he wants this better love to make them pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Pure really just meaning that we are internally holy within ourselves. When we are alone, we are the same person that we are in public. That we are God's holy people. But also blameless. And this is the one people sometimes have a harder time with. Blameless. That we are externally holy. That when other, people's lo- other people look at us, they're not assessing us as in the wrong. See, because true holiness, true following God, true faithfulness to his ways requires that we both be internally holy and externally holy. That not only are we holy in ourselves on our own, but that we are seen as holy to others which people don't like so much because that means other people's judgment actually affects whether I'm in the right. Now, the good news for us is that our holiness, on the one hand, does not come from our own works because you couldn't make yourself holy even if you wanted to. In fact, if you really want to make yourself holy, you're probably farther away from becoming holy than you are when you realize you can't. You can put that sentence together later. The reality is that we need to become holy by receiving Jesus Christ. We need to become holy not by by just avoiding sin and working harder, but actually becoming closer to Jesus. Sometimes I tell people, you know, in Scripture it talks about the gospel and it connects it with repenting from sin and believing in Jesus. Repenting, turning away from those things that are evil and and lead us down the wrong path, those things that lead us away from God, sin. And believing, trusting, having faith in Jesus. And I've often told people repent kind of gets a bad name. It gets a name as, you know, you you always imagine, at least I do, the the revival rallies and tents where the evangelist that came from out of town that you've never seen before, or you see him every year depending on your church, shows up and with sweat on his face is telling you that you need to repent. He might even be yelling at you to repent. And all you know that word means is get your life together. Get cleaned up. I mean, he's wearing a suit. Maybe I ought to as well. But repentance in Scripture isn't so much about get your life in order so that you can have Jesus. It's more like realize you can't get your life in order so you can have Jesus. Sometimes I tell people, it's not cleaning your room It's realizing that your room is a mess and you can never fix it on your own. Getting your house in order in terms of repentance isn't making your house better on your own. It's realizing you need Jesus to help you. And so if we are going to be holy, we can't be reliant on ourselves. We can't be reliant on our our minds and our, our hearts and our hands and our feet. We must be reliant on Christ. That's part of the reason Paul is telling us to pray. Notice he's not saying, go be pure and blameless, although he might say that in other places. Here he's saying, I'm praying that your love would abound with knowledge and all discernment. I'm praying that your love would abound so that you would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He's he's praying for them because prayer is what is going to bring about the change in their hearts and their minds. It's not just them feeling guilty although that may be part of it. It's not just them saying, you know what, I need to get habits and routines in order so that my life is better. It's, it's not just some self-help book. It's, it's actual help. 
It's God help. It's turning to Christ and realizing that my holiness, my internal holiness and my external holiness is not dependent on me or anyone else in my circle except for the Lord Jesus Christ, his work, his love. And Paul, Paul wants us to have a better love, a sanctifying love, a holier love, so that we would be ready for the day of Christ. Paul constantly in his letters connects ethics, the way we are to live, with the coming day of Jesus Christ. His ethics is eschatological. It's all about the last things. So that at the day of Christ, Paul wants us to be ready. So that every day leading up to Jesus' second coming, we live more like Jesus now. Because that day is on its way. We want to be prepared for the Lord's judgment. We want the way we live to display his grace in our lives. So Paul prays that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And when we have have that better love Paul prays for, we are then filled with, according to uh, Philippians 1.10 here, we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. As we just talked about before, from the very beginning we wanted to take that fruit from God so that we could choose what is right and what is wrong for ourselves. But here, the reality is the fruit that we need isn't taken from God, it's given by God to us. It is the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus and through Christ Jesus alone. The only way we can receive the fruit that we need, the righteousness that we need, the righteousness that, that covers all of our sin, that disobedience against God, the righteousness that will lead us to conquer death, we only receive that through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, Paul's prayer for love is in some ways a prayer for God, a prayer for God to abound more and more. So we see that true love leads to holiness, not to sin. And, and if you call something true love when it leads you to sin, then it's probably not true love and it may very well not be love at all. True love leads us to God, not away from Him. It leads us to a God who is holy, not away from Him. It leads us to a God who is love Himself, not away from Him. And if we find ourselves in the name of love, moving farther away from God then we are not really acting in love at all. And finally, we need to pray for worshipful love. Paul ends his prayer for love by writing, to the glory and praise of God. See, our love, our love should have as its end, as its goal, the praise of God. See, if sin is attached to love, then it cannot lead to praise of God. If foolishness is attached to love, then it cannot lead to praise of God. If limits are attached to love, then it cannot lead to praise of God. The only way we can have love that leads to praise is to have love that is greater, that is abundant, love that is wiser, that is discerning, and love that is better, that is sanctifying. That kind of love, true love, love not just a generic idea that you put on cards that you give at Valentine's Day. And I hope you got many of those. 
but love that is from God. Love that calls us to God. Love should always lead us to more and more worship of God. When our love is focused on God and lived out in righteousness, then it should naturally, naturally lead us to worship, to praise, to glory of God. And worshiping God is the purpose of all creation. As we read in Psalm 100, as we read throughout the scriptures, God created and it was for His glory. And so likewise, as part of His creation, as creatures in this world, we ought to worship and praise God. I read, uh, I know last week I mentioned the Asbury revival going on in our, and, and prayed for them. But I have a, a friend or someone I know, who, he's a professor, who's at Asbury now. And his, his children are actually students at the university as well. And he wrote an article for Christianity Today on what's going on. And he talked about... Uh, how in his classroom, at, while this is going on in the chapels, I mean, they have three different chapels on campus that are all completely full with lines out the door. I mean, they have thousands of people there. And he said in one of his classes, he taught how, he talked about how being a creature, being a part of God's creation, the most natural thing to us is worship of God. The most natural thing is worship. Now, I mean, the reality is if we don't worship God, we will worship something else. We live in a culture that says, I don't want to worship God, so I'm going to worship nothing. But the end result is that we find other things to worship. We might worship ourselves. We may worship some other religion. We may worship, you know, our our spouse or our children or something in our lives or maybe many things in our lives. We may worship the state. We may worship our home. We may worship whatever because we are worshiping creatures. God created this world to worship. And so the creatures in this world, us... We are going to worship something. And it's just about getting back in line with worshiping the one true God. We see in Scripture, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. The love of God is the most basic form of worship. He tells us in Scripture that we need to love our church family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. He tells us to love one another. That is the most basic way of being a church member, is to love one another. In fact, in 1 John, he says, If anyone says, I love God, and then hates his brother or sister in Christ, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he can see, cannot love God whom he has not seen. So we're called to love God. We're also called to love our church family, the people in our church. And we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are called to love the people around us. We're called to love all people. And in fact, even down to Jesus telling us to love our enemies. Now tell me, Tell me that that makes sense to you, because it surely doesn't to anyone else. Everyone in our culture, they want to talk about love over and over and over again, and they want to call some of us unloving for for opinions or, or positions we may have. Yet at the same time, are they really being loving to us either? This morning, I guess my challenge is this. I want to challenge each and every one of us 
to be a praying Christian, not just a Christian who prays. To be a praying person, not just a person who prays. To be a praying church, not just a church that prays. And what I mean by that is I think that our lives as Christians, our lives in the church should be defined by prayer. You can't look to Scripture without seeing that prayer is fundamental. Oswald Chambers said that prayer does not fit us for the greater work. It is the greater work. We treat prayer as a means to an end. We, we, we treat it as the thing that we do so that we can go do stuff in the name of God. So if we pray before we worship, that's good. If we pray before we make a decision, that's good. If we pray before we go to work or before we eat a meal or before we do something, that's good. But the radical call of Scripture is that the church would be a house of prayer. That God's people would be themselves little temples of prayer where the Holy Spirit dwells. The, the message of Scripture is not that we are people who occasionally pray, but God's people are praying people. And I see, you know, and I'll admit, I'll confess that I've wondered in my own life whether, whether in the culture that we live in, whether in the world I see, that God could possibly bring revival and renewal, or that he would even do it. I confess that. I've said that. I don't know if God would do such a thing, and I don't know whether he is or not yet. I, I saw someone point to Acts uh, this morning in, in terms of the revivals going on, saying, you know, we, we, we leave them alone and we see. If, if it's of man, it'll fail. If it's of God, it will continue. And I, I think that's the right approach. But in confessing that, I must realize that I also believe in a God who's all-powerful, I believe in a God who wants to see people come to him in faith. I believe in a God who wants to see us confess our sins. I believe in a God who very much wants to see this world turned upside down for his glory. And so I very much should believe in revival, believe in the hope for it. But the only work that I can do, I, I can't schedule a guest speaker coming in for a week and, and assume that the Spirit of God will show up. I can't go to, to a neighborhood and beg them to show up to a parking lot where they may hear the gospel. I, I can't pour money and time into doing all these things and manipulating people into making decisions. We cannot manufacture true revival. We cannot manufacture true love in our hearts. The only thing we can do, and the only thing we should do, is pray that God would go to work. And pray that we might be there to be a part of it. Let's pray.